Exodus chapter 10, and starting in verse 21, light in the darkness. We haven't done this for a while, but let's do this together. Let's stand, if you're physically able to stand, for the reading of the Word of God. Exodus 10, 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, Exodus 10, 21, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. And then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we might sacrifice or may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too will go with us, not a hoof will be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you are right, I shall never see your face again. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your living word as we deal with the ninth plague. And we talk about light in the darkness. We know that darkness is certainly a powerful, scary thing. And if any of us have ever been in a cave where it was completely dark, we know how uh, ominous that can be and terrifying and even paralyzing. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at this plague and see how light was shining in Goshen where your people were and how you continued to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, between those who belong to you and those who do not. I pray, Lord, that we would be searching, looking for your light to come into our lives. You are not far from each one of us. And if we're feeling like things are a bit dark in our lives, I pray that your light would flood into that darkness. You are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? You are the strength of our lives. And I pray that your light would penetrate all of our lives today and give us hope and truth and beauty. In Jesus' name and for your sake we pray it. Amen. Well, uh, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand, plague number nine toward the sky. He probably had the staff in his hand, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. Now, I don't know how one feels darkness, but I know how darkness can feel in terms of an emotional feeling that we can have. And when uh, we were little kids, I remember dark uh, was, darkness was kind of a scary thing. How many of you had a nightlight uh, when you were growing up? Anybody have a nightlight? You go, any, anybody still have the nightlight? You're many decades later, you still have it. For some of you, that's just so you don't stumble uh, going to the restroom at night. We get it. But this was a darkness that could be felt. It's described as a thick darkness in verse 22 which may be felt, Moses stretching out his staff, and this thick darkness would uh, suddenly appear. I don't think it came slowly from the language. I think it was a sudden darkness, like Moses reached up the staff to the sky, and darkness was there. 
Nature's lights were turned off. One writer says the land of perpetual sunshine, that is Egypt, was smothered in what the Bible calls literally a dark darkness. We can only imagine how dreadful this was for the Egyptians. When your God is the sun and the sun gets blotted out, you are left only with emptiness and dread. How does one feel darkness? Well, if you look at the original language, this is the way you could translate the darkness that they felt. It was a darkness that required, breaking down the Hebrew word, groping around or feeling one's way around. You might remember in Genesis 19 in Sodom when the angels uh, struck the men who came to the door. It says they were left groping around, groping for the door. And that's the idea of the language here, that the darkness left people bewildered and groping around, not knowing what to do and how to make sense of this, feeling their way around. We've described seasons in our lives as dark days. And certainly, you know, we can go back to COVID and things that have happened. And certainly that's been a dark stretch of time for many, many people trying to make sense of what was going on, what God is doing. And you might say, well, what's the deal with the uh, darkness here? What is it? Well, it is a claustrophobic, palpable, absolute darkness. And it is anticipatory. What do you mean by that, Pastor Michael? Here's what I mean. It's anticipating the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. So the darkness becomes a final warning sign. And some of you may uh, remember, and you can kind of piece this together in your mind, that when Jesus and other writers describe the day of the Lord, the final sign that precedes the coming of Jesus Christ, the second Passover, if you will, is a darkness that says the sun doesn't give its light, the moon doesn't give its light, the stars no longer shine, or even uh, language says they fall from the sky. Here's an example of one of the day of the Lord passages. This is Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. It says, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, it's a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That's Zephaniah 1, just reading 14 and 15. In the ancient world, darkness was an ominous threat. When we uh, navigate our lives in modern society, we have electric everything, we have uh, lights in our cars, we can turn on you know, electricity in our homes. And if the power goes out, uh, it's amazing how many things we take for granted that don't work. Amen? <laughs> and uh, near the top of the list is all of our devices now, right? The internet's out. What are we going to do now? <laughs> the internet's out. It's almost as if our lives stop when the internet is out, right? We've become so dependent on that power and those sources and everything. And, you know, it's, it's uh, almost beyond us to think about lighting a couple of candles and talking with people that we live with, but uh, we won't go there right now. And so uh, this darkness came, and it is, in the ancient world, they considered confinement and darkness a grave punishment from God, even some sort of purposeful, purposeful force associated it with death 
We don't think much about it today, but a, an ancient person who didn't have, like, let's say it was not a bright night, they were pretty much immobilized. They couldn't do anything in the darkness. Everything pretty much shut down when the sun set. And this is what Egypt experienced for three days, a deep darkness that people could feel. And darkness becomes a metaphor for many things in life. It's symbolic of evil and its power, if you're taking notes. It symbolizes the spiritual, fallen, unregenerate state of the unbeliever. Darkness speaks of error, ignorance, sin, rebellion, and death. It speaks of all that is opposed to God, and it is a picture of a Christ-rejecting world. Jesus says these words in John 3, starting in verse 18. He who believes in the Son is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but men, what? Love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so they won't come to the light, Jesus says, lest their deeds should be exposed. And so there's a group of people that just, Jesus says, prefer the darkness. In uh, Ephesians 4.18, Paul is describing the Gentiles, unbelievers, the futility of their mind. And he says in Ephesians 4.18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life or the light of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. In fact, to disobey God, 1 John 1, 6, is to walk in darkness. And when somebody's walking in darkness, if you walk out the metaphor, it means that they don't know where they're going. Jesus said it's like a blind person leading a blind person. And if a blind person leads a blind person, will they not both fall into a pit? So it describes a person who doesn't know where they're going. Thy word is a lamp to my feet. We just studied Psalm 119 on Wednesday nights. And a light to my path. But when you don't have the, the light of God to guide you, you're just guessing. You're going with the, the flow, if you will, of the world. And so this was a sign, an ominous sign of judgment that was coming. And darkness came over the land of Egypt for three days. So imagine you wake up in the morning, you have your coffee, it's pitch dark. At 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., noon, 1 p.m., and the sun doesn't come out. And you have to start thinking, what's going on here? What has happened? You know, there are people who will try to explain this. It, it was an eclipse of the sun. It was a radical, ongoing sandstorm. I got sand in my eye. That's why it's so dark. Uh-uh. This was a supernatural event of God. And remember, every plague is striking at an Egyptian deity. You can write down, just to remind yourself, Exodus 12, 12 and Numbers 33, 4. God was attacking the false gods of Egypt. He was showing how helpless they were. In Revelation 16, 10 and 11, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. This is a last day scenario. And they gnawed their tongues, Revelation 16, 10 and 11, because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. 
So God moved in with darkness against the chief deity of the Egyptians, and that was the god Ra. R-A, if you're taking notes, or some say it was spelled R-E, the god Ra. Here's some things about him. The sun disk is the most familiar symbol the Egyptians used. You could often see them wearing it on their chests. It's in all their art. The plague of darkness showed the utter helplessness of Ra. The Egyptians also served Horus, the god of the sunrise, Aten, the god of the round midday sun, Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amun-Ra, who allegedly said, quoting, I am the great god who came into being by himself, he who created his names, he who has no opponent among the gods. The Egyptians believed that the solar deity, Amun-Ra, was their creator. And they sang songs to the sun disk. Here's an example. They'd sing, unique God, there is none besides him. You mold the earth to your wish, and you and you alone. All people, herds and flocks, all on the earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with their wings. They worship the sun. For a people who worship the sun, the sun God, darkness meant just one thing. Uh Uh-oh, did he go on vacation? Or even worse, is Amun-Ra dead? What happens when your God can't give you light anymore? When your God with a small g apparently is powerless? Well, this is exactly what God is doing with this particular plague. He is saying the sun is not God, S-U-N, I am God. I made the sun. Amen? The Lord is the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. The only reason that there's a sun is because there's a God who is the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. And so people worship this sun. They said, this is our light. This is our salvation. And get this. Pharaoh was supposed to be the incarnation of Ra. He was the light in human form. So you can see how the devil works, can't you? A mockery of Jesus even coming into the world. A false uh, Christ or antichrist was the Pharaoh. And so the Egyptian people did not see one another. Moses lifts up the staff. The darkness comes, 23. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. If you have a new living, it says during all that time, 23, the people could not see each other. No one moved, but there was light as usual where the people of Israel lived. And there are several scholars that I read this week that say that even attempts to turn on some sort of light, i.e. an ancient candle or something like that, apparently did not work. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know, but God is God. And supernatural, apparent, supernaturally, apparently, they couldn't even light something human, you know, man-made to give them light. And everybody was just stuck, frozen, paralyzed in their dwellings. But in Goshen, light was streaming from the houses there. 
And of course, you can begin to once again see the distinction that God makes between his covenant people, Israel, and the Egyptians. They're in total darkness, and Israel remains in the light. And we are children of light. Once we were in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Amen? Walk as children of light. There are many verses that talk about this. Moving from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. We are God's holy people. We are to proclaim the praises, 1 Peter 2, 9, of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It was Saul on the road to Damascus who saw that great light. He described the light of Christ in Acts 9 as brighter than the noonday sun. That is, the one who made the sun is himself light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus even described people who fall into judgment that they end up in a place described as outer Darkness. You can see that at least three times in the Gospels. Jesus says there's a place of judgment called outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not where you want to end up. You don't want to end up in a place of judgment described as outer darkness, a place, if you will, of deep darkness that could be felt. And there are scholars that believe that uh, Egypt was being decreated. A decreation is going on. And there would be fear, uh, a sense of doom in Egypt, sensory deprivation, disorientation, psychological distress, so many things. Here's a story from the early 1900s. On August 1st, 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton and his crew set sail from London aboard the ship Endurance. They were bound for Antarctica, where the famous explorer hoped to traverse the continent on foot. But Shackleton never made the trek because before the endurance could reach land, the ship became hopelessly lodged in the ice pack. It was January 1915. And from this point, their goal became simple survival. The crew faced many hardships in the months that followed including freezing temperatures and near starvation. But of all the frozen terrors they faced, none was more disheartening than the long polar night. The sailors grew uneasy as winter set in and the light began to fade. In In early May, the sun vanished altogether, not to be seen again until late July. Shackleton's biographer wrote these words. In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few men unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. There are places on the planet where depression can become uh, a more of a reality because the sun is not shining. And for me, I'm a sun guy. Anybody else out there? I really appreciate the sun. I like the coast. I like things like that. And if it's cloudy for a couple of days in the row, a row, it's a, it's a bummer, man. You know, 
I like the warmth of the light. I love the sunshine. I love, have you guys seen some of the beautiful sunsets lately? Man, the colors in the sky. It's so beautiful and so awesome. And it doesn't make me say, oh, Amen Ra, you're so wonderful and unique. No. I don't say, thank you, Mother Earth, for giving us such a wonderful sunset today. No. See, the Bible teaches that God is the Father of lights. And that means the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he made these things. And God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. Let me flip it around for a second. If there was such a terrible uh, darkness that the people of Egypt could feel, how about the brilliant light that we can sense in our lives? Amen? How about the beauty of God's light living inside of you? We are jars of clay and we house within those jars the light of the gospel. Amen? The light of our creator. He illumines my darkness. The Lord is my light, Psalm 27 verse 1, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Amen? This is the truth of who you are. You've moved from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. And the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. I don't know what people do without the light of God. But the Egyptians were a picture of those without the Lord. Light was streaming out in the darkness from Goshen, from the homes of the Lord's people. And that should be the case today, that light should come from our homes, amen? From our marriages, from our businesses, from our individual lives. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You, Philippians 2.15, shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This is where we live, but this is what we can do. We can shine the light into people's lives. And there are those who are bumbling around, groping around in the darkness. First John 1, 5 through 7 says, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When the church gathers we gather as the collective lights. It's not our light. We simply shine the light of God. If To use the metaphor, we're not like the sun. We're like the moon. We share reflected light with the world. But it's the Lord's light in my life. Verse 24. And so Pharaoh called to Moses as he normally did. And he said, okay, 24, go serve the Lord. Only, he always has a negotiation point, right? Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. But even your little ones can go with you. You can take your kids with you. And Moses replied, no, you keep them. No, just kidding. That's a loose translation. That's actually not what it says. That's, uh, that was from Second Opinions. Uh, but he is sneaky, isn't he? Now he tries to convince them that they could serve the Lord, but serve him at the same time. Leave your flocks and herds behind. Well, what would happen if they left them behind? Well, they wouldn't have anything to sacrifice. But also, there would be a food issue because the numbers roughly are 
at least a million people who leave Egypt in the Exodus. Can you imagine that? That's a lot of people to feed. And the Pharaoh, in his sneaky way, would uh, upend their worship, but also their food supply. And this is just how the enemy works. He says, okay, go worship God, but leave this behind. This is how sin works. Sometimes we we get to a point in our lives where we say, okay, I'm going to get serious about my sin now, and I'm not going to do it anymore. And we put that thing that causes us to sin in the pantry for later. And then we make these declarations. All right, I'm tired of it. I'm not going to sin anymore. But you just stay right over here in this little pantry. And what we really know is we're coming back later for that. So we're just playing a game with ourselves. If you want to get serious about dealing with sin in your life, don't put that stumbling block in your pantry. Give everything that you have to the Lord. And so their solar deity, their God, Amun-Ra, was in trouble. And so was the personal embodiment of the solar deity, the Pharaoh. Get this. They used to sing songs to the Pharaoh like this. He is looked upon like Ra when he rises, like the shining of Aten, like the rising of Kepri at the sight of his rays on high, like a tomb in the eastern sky. When Pharaoh walked by, people would go, oh, look, the embodiment of the solar deity. He's so cool, he's got to wear shades. I think the Pharaoh had some ancient sunglasses going on as he walked by. Pharaoh, well, look, look how shiny, he's real shiny. Wow. The Egyptians worshiped Pharaoh as their God. And in school, children were instructed to worship Pharaoh living forever and say something like this. Within your bodies, children, associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is Ra, by whose beams one sees. He is one who illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. The Egyptians thus ascribed all majesty and eternity to Pharaoh. He was their illuminator, the Lord of their hearts. Sometimes they even prayed to him. They said, attend me, O rising sun that illuminates the two lands with his comeliness. O solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt. Thy nature is like unto thy father, Ra, who arises in heaven. Can you imagine how embarrassing it must have been to see the sun go out, which is supposed to be your main deity, and Pharaoh, the embodiment of the solar disk, groveling on the ground before some shepherd from the God of the Hebrews. Okay, you can go, but can you leave us a couple of animals? What happened to this real shiny deity, this Pharaoh that's supposed to be all that? He was nothing. See, he was dealing with the one who said in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the God who brought light out of darkness made the light fade to black. Psalm 19 Verses one through five. I'm gonna just give you several psalms in a row. If you wanna turn there, you can, but here's what it says. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. Psalm 19, verse two. Day to day they pour forth speech. Night to night they reveal knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth. Psalm 19, verse four. 
their utterance to the end of the world. In them, he, God, has placed a tent for the sun, which as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Look at Psalm 136, verse 5. Psalm 136, verse 5 says, To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, 136, 6. His loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night, his loving kindness is everlasting. And Psalm 104 verse 19 said, says, he made the moon for the seasons, the sun knows the place of its setting. Those who uh, look into such things say the sun is the perfect distance from the earth. If it were a little closer, we would fry. A little further away, and we would freeze. God has meticulously placed things in our world, in our universe, to give us just the right amount of what we need. Should anything shift or change, we would be in desperate straits. But here's what the Bible says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When Jesus was on the planet, the people were witnessing the God who made the great lights, the God who made the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's the one who's the embodiment, if you will, of the ultimate God. This is the one to whom we must give an account. He is the true light coming into the world, which enlightens every man, John 1, 9. In him was life, John 1, 4. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus said to people in his earthly ministry, I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. And in Matthew 9, uh, excuse me, uh, Matthew 4, quoting Isaiah 9, the great prophecy about the Messiah. It says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, the Messiah. Those who live in a dark land, this is from Isaiah 9 two, the light will shine on them. And in John 12, just one more, here's what Jesus says. For a little while longer, the light is among you, verse 35. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. John 12, 35, and 36. And so I ask you, who is your light? Where do you get your light? Where do you get your truth? Where do you get your beauty? Where does it come from? God is light. And he wants to be the light, the beauty, the truth, the source of hope. All these metaphors that connect to light in our lives. And I'll tell you what, when the lights came on in my life some three decades ago, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. 
the beauty of this God that made us in his image, the scriptures that I was beginning to understand for the first time. Do you remember those days for those of you who have been Christians for a while? You'd read a passage and it was the first time you ever saw this truth about God, this light that had come into the world and come into your life. And so the light is shining. It's already shining. And Moses said, you must also, 25, let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He's worthy. We're not leaving anything. Therefore, our livestock too will go with us. Not a hoof, 26, will be left behind. Don't leave anything behind in Egypt, brethren. Don't leave a hoof behind. For we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. Look at 25. You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings. You're going to give us some of your animals too, Pharaoh. Can you believe that? I think there was a little shortage in uh, Egypt at this time. Many animals had died in the hail and so forth. And what were they to do now? Well, they wanted Israel out of there. Ultimately, they're going to say, please leave. Okay, you can take the animals with you. Get out of here. Here's some jewelry. Here's a necklace. Here's a bracelet. Go. Right? Egypt was already ruined. Moses would not compromise. He would not come up one hoof short. (laughs) Amen? Don't leave anything behind in Egypt. Don't leave anything to fend for itself there. Egypt being a type of the world. Everybody with me? Egypt in quotes here. Don't leave stuff in the world behind. Take it all. I'll give you a sports analogy for you guys. Coaches will say, leave everything on the floor. If you lose this game, make sure you lost because the other team beat you. Not because you came halfway. Not because you showed up and decided that you wouldn't prepare yourself or you wouldn't play your hardest. Don't do that. And please don't do that with your Christian life. Amen? Don't leave a hoof behind. Leave it all on the floor. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We've seen this over and over. And he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, to Moses, Get away from me. Beware. Do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. There's a couple of scriptures ahead of us where it may imply that Moses did see Pharaoh again. So some see this as a heat of the moment. Uh, Have you ever said that before to someone in an argument? I don't ever want to see your face again. (laughs) Ever said that? Usually with some regret afterwards, right? And uh, what was it, the Gladiator movie where the, uh, the sister is found out for trying to uh, you know, get the emperor killed, and he says to her in a terrible moment in that movie, I don't ever want to see your face again! And she, she turns away. She won't look at him. And he threatens her with death. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. The pharaoh is upset, and he basically says, get out of here, I'm sick of you, and if you see my face again, you will die. (laughs) Can you imagine that? How long 
I mean, how many times do you think, I'm surprised it took this long for Pharaoh to threaten Moses with death, amen? I, I would have think that this would have happened very early on. But here's the irony. Pharaoh is about to experience what he is conveying because the darkness is a prelude to what's coming, the death of the firstborn in Egypt from the house of Pharaoh to every household that doesn't have the blood of the lamb. And here's what it says. There wasn't one house in Egypt where somebody wasn't dead. And the words that the Pharaoh spoke ominously are prophetic. And so he says, get out of here, new living. He shouted at Moses, I'm warning you, never come back to see me again. The day you see my face, you will die. And Moses, who was so fearful at the burning bush, I can't talk well, Lord, you got the wrong guy. Notice this, Moses said, you're right. You've spoken truth. You will never see my face again. <laughs> Gotta love it. Moses has gotten the baptism of boldness, baby. Come on. The guy who thought, no, I can't do it. Now he's saying, you're right, Pharaoh. The most powerful leader, the alleged son of Ra, embodiment of light. You're right. You aren't gonna see my face again because death is coming to Egypt. It is likely that Moses spoke the words of uh, Exodus 11, 4 through 8, part of the, as part of the conversation interrupted only by the prophecy of 11, 1, and uh, we'll get into this next week. This would explain Moses' great anger toward Pharaoh in chapter 11, verse 8. It's possible that Moses saw Pharaoh's face one more time. If you're taking notes, you can note chapter 12, verse 31, although some believe that it was simply a message from the Pharaoh and not a direct meeting. Now the ninth plague of darkness precedes the 10th plague, which is the plague of the death of the firstborn in Egypt, the final one. But there's something else here that we need to see, and this is how we're gonna round out our time this morning. We are about to study the Passover, and you all know that the 10th and final plague in Egypt is the death of the firstborn preceded by a period of darkness. And here's where, here's, uh, some of the thoughts that I had. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead and so forth. And even though it doesn't speak of birth order in Jesus's case, when God sent his firstborn into the world, Hebrews 1.6, it says, let all the angels of God worship him. This is something that I just thought about. The darkness on the cross preceded the death of God's lamb, if you will. There are places where he is called the firstborn from the Father. Remember, that doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It speaks of his preeminence, that he has the uppermost rank, and yet there is a connection to Egypt and the plagues. Could not the darkness over all the land of Egypt that is associated with Israel's exodus be an appropriate parallel to the darkness over all the land associated with with Jesus's exodus. I think so, and I want to show you a couple of passages. Let's turn all the way to Matthew 24. Jesus has been asked by the apostles, what will be the uh, sign of your coming and the end of the age? What should we look for? The sign of your coming and the end of the world or the end of the age? And Jesus gives them many signs to look at. 
But let's skip ahead for a second and let's look at Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 2430 of Matthew. Then the sign of the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and he will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The sign that will precede the second Passover, if I could put it that way, is going to be a darkened sky. Some people say, well, maybe that's just a metaphor. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, a way to depict something else. But if there was literal darkness in Egypt for three days, could there not be literal darkness preceding the second coming of Jesus? Yes. And what is the second coming of Jesus? Two primary things. One is to rescue his elect from the four winds, we just read it, from one end of the sky to the other, rapture, pulling out God's people, almost like uh, Israel being pulled out of Egypt. The people go out, and then what happens? The day of the Lord is the judgment of God. Darkness preceding the judgment. But first, God's people are taken out, then the judgment comes down. The darkness becomes a sign the final sign preceding the Passover, the second Passover. Everybody with me? I'm talking about the second coming now. Here's something else. I want you to turn to Luke. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a lot of scriptures I could share, but uh, for the sake of time, let's turn over to the Gospel of Luke. We're gonna look at chapter 23. I wanna show you something that is affirmed, confirmed by secular history uh, several ancient writers confirm a dreadful darkness that happened during midday. And here's how Luke records it. This is Luke 23. Let's pick it up at verse 44. Luke 23, 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 to 3 p.m., the sun would be at, at its zenith the land went dark. Darkness fell. You could say a deep darkness that could be felt. It fell over the whole land from 12 to 3. The sun being obscured, Luke 23, 45, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and having breathed his last now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I want to show you one more. Go back to Matthew. Go to chapter 27. This is Matthew's version of the same uh, moments, but he gives us a little different insight. Matthew 27, look at verse 45. Jesus is on the cross. Matthew 27, 45 says these words. Make sure I get there myself. Now from the sixth hour, 
Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Matthew 27, 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the whole world, there pressed a fearful, most fearful darkness. This is uh, from ancient writers. And the rocks were rent by an earthquake in many places in Judea. This is extra biblical sources. And other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus in his third book of history calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Tertullian mentioned this event in his Apologeticum, a defense of Christianity written to skeptics. He says, at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun. The land was darkened at noonday, which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your own archives to this day, close quote. When Tertullian was trying to convince skeptics in the ancient world about the reality of Christianity, the truthfulness of it, he appealed to an event that everybody knew about. On a Passover afternoon, everything went dark when it shouldn't have. In the middle of the day for three hours. Three days of darkness in Egypt. Three hours of darkness as the firstborn of the father, if you will. The Lamb of God is about to die. Now get this, brethren. What we're about to see in Egypt is this fearful darkness is going to be followed by instructions on the Passover. And God is going to say that every household is to take a lamb and they're to kill it on Friday of Passover week or Thursday, some people would argue, at twilight, three in the afternoon. And they're to take that blood and place it on the doorposts and the lentil of their house. Many believe making the sign of a cross. And God says, I'm going to pass over that night. And when I see the blood, I'm not going to judge that house. Wrath was coming to Egypt. And the sign of that wrath about to, about to commence was darkness. On the cross, the firstborn of the father the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is there and darkness falls over the land as the Lamb of God is dying. And here's the message. I, the Father, am pouring out my wrath on my Son instead of you and he's taking the wrath of God and this affirms it because from the cross in those dark moments, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's drinking in the judgment, if you will, taking the wrath in our place. And the Holy Spirit weaves this tapestry together so we can see what's going on. We are spared the judgment. The Passover doesn't harm us because the blood of the lamb is applied to our lives. Amen? That's the truth. That's the gospel. The good news that the one who made the sun, moon, and stars, who entered into time and space, would you just bow your heart with me, died in our place, the just for the unjust. Not some solar deity 
who made the world and said, good luck. No, a God who entered into our existence, our world, our pain. Heavenly Father, we know that the, the picture certainly is that God the Father so loved this world that he gave his son. Light came into our world. And how we need that light, Father. How desperately we need to see that Jesus is the light. And the one who is the light took the darkness of judgment to make sure we could be children of light. We could be spared the wrath of God. And we're told why. Because you so loved the world that you made, that you gave your son. And you gave him for Hebrews and Egyptians and Italians and people from every tribe, tongue, nation of people, people from Africa and Europe and Central America and South America. You love the world that you made. And the cross becomes a picture of a God who is holy and he must judge sin, but judges his son instead of us. And death passes over. And the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us with such an amazing love. Just take a few moments to just seek the Lord He's not far from each one of us. If you just feel like you've been in a dark place, maybe, you, maybe your faith's been hurting a little bit. Maybe you would say, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. Maybe you're watching right now and you're like, man, darkness fits my life better than light. Why don't you cry out to him? Cry out to the one who died on the cross for you. Something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe that you came into this world as the light of the world. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I trust you. It's my God, my King, my Savior, my Lord. I repent of my sin and I place my trust in you. Save me. Flood my life with your light. Thank you, Father. You are so faithful. You're so good. Thank you for the warmth and beauty of your light. I pray it would flood every heart on this day. And I thank you once again for fathers. May you bless them, keep them. May your wonderful face shine upon all your people. May you give them shalom in Jesus' name.